have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. You know, as we've been going through this sermon series, it's been pretty great so far for Nehemiah and the people, if you think about it. I mean, he gets the bad news in the first chapter. Uh, he prays and he fasts for four months. Chapter two, he goes before the king, and that's wildly successful. You know, the king approves of his mission, and he gives him the resources that he needs to go and carry out this mission. He makes it back to Jerusalem, and the people are enthusiastic to do this work. And then we saw last week in chapter three, where Nehemiah lists all of the people that were engaged in the work, and we see this great group of people, this diverse group of people who are all unified toward the same mission, and they're all working together. And if Nehemiah was a three-chapter, chapter book, that would be super encouraging. That would be a great ending. But I hope you know that life does not work that way. Uh, and then we get to chapter four, and I almost titled this sermon, maybe I should have, The Honeymoon is Over. Because now real life sets in, reality comes crashing in, and it gets more and more difficult. We get a firm dose of reality in this text where it is now getting very difficult for Nehemiah and the people. And here's the reality, and I think you can attest to this. Many things get more and more difficult the further into it we get, right? We start with that initial surge of excitement and zeal and passion for something. And as we get further into it, we're like, oh, do I have to keep doing this? One example for me that comes to mind is I went on a mission trip with Coastal in 2019. Which, by the way, if you've never been on a mission trip with Coastal, you're missing out. That one's free. Uh, so we went to Bolivia in 2019, had a wonderful time. Uh, and one time we were doing a, a sightseeing thing. So in Bolivia, where we were, there was this, there's this statue of Jesus that's about 100 feet tall, and it's at the top of a mountain. And so there's two ways that you can get up there to see the statue. You can take the bus on the road up the mountain, or they have what they call the 2,000 steps. Now, it is what it sounds like. It's literally just 2,000 stairs up a mountain. So uh, they told our group, you can do whichever one you want. Uh, about half of our group decided to take the bus. And I thought, well, you know what? While we're here, I want to experience the full range of the trip. I want to do everything that's here. So I'll take the stairs with everybody. When you first start out, man, the weather's nice. We're having good conversations on the team. It's just a great moment. This is awesome. We're climbing the 2,000 steps together. About halfway up, I'm like, what was I thinking? That bus was looking amazing at that moment when we're halfway up. And then you get a little bit further up, and I can barely see the rest of the team at this point. I'm uh, in the back with the guy who just had a knee replacement. Uh, and then there's a guy on our team who did like Spartan races and stuff like that. He had already been to the top, and he was on his way back down to check on us before he went back up to the top. So you can see how well we're doing. And at that moment, I wish I would have taken the bus. But the reality is, when we get further into something, it ordinarily becomes increasingly difficult the longer that we stick at it. This is exactly what we're going to see this morning. They are now beginning to face opposition to their mission. And things are getting increasingly difficult. And over the next three weeks, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we're going to see this continual intensification and escalation of opposition, where things are going to get more and more and more difficult while they're building this wall. So here's the main point. Opposition can be expected, but we should watch and pray as we continue the work God has given us. Friends, I hope you know that God never promised that our mission would be easy. God never promised that it would be easy. In fact, I want to give you a promise from the Word of God this morning, from Jesus himself. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. 
you will have trouble. That's normally not a coffee cup kind of promise, but, but Jesus said it. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So we can and should expect opposition. But this morning, I hope to show you from this passage of Scripture how we can glorify God in the way that we respond to opposition. So with this in mind, let's study together Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says this. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And so, Father, now we ask for your blessing over the preaching of your inspired word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, you are the potter and we are the clay. And we pray that you would mold us into your image by the power of your spirit for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by talking about this opposition to Nehemiah's mission that we see in this text. As we've been doing in this series, the first half of the sermon, we are going to walk through the passage. And then in the second half, we're going to talk about how it applies to us today as followers of Christ. In Nehemiah's mission, there were three sources of opposition that I'd like to point out to you. The first is opposition by mocking. It's opposition by mocking. Now, they've already been mocked by these guys before. I hope you remember that from chapter 2, but I think it's a little bit different. See, in chapter 2, they hadn't started building yet. And I think that that was sort of the, uh, you'll never be able to do that. Kind of this dismissive mocking. But in chapter 4, it's a little bit different. It says that Sanballat was angry and greatly enraged. The word in the original literally means he was hot. He was fuming when he saw what they were doing. It's now more intense. This is more than the dismissive, you'll never do this. This is the, oh man, you're actually doing this. And it made him furious. And this is the kind of bitter ridicule and mocking that is intended to intimidate and to bully them into silence. Ridicule is often the first tactic of the opposition for several reasons. First of all, because it's easy. Because it's easy. Anybody can do it. Second, because it does not require any basis in truth. If you go through the things that he says, you'll realize that none of them are actually true. It's slander. And then finally, because it works. Because it works. Think about it, even in our lives today. Why are we often so afraid to share our faith? Why are we so afraid to take a public stand for Christ and for what God's Word says on culturally sensitive issues? Because we don't want to be made fun of. We don't want to be mocked. We don't want to be ridiculed by those around us. 
But what exactly is he saying in his mocking? What Sanballat does is he gives this string of questions that are all intended to ridicule Nehemiah. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? He's calling them weak. He says, will they finish up in a day? In other words, this project is too big for you. There's no way you're going to be able to actually do it. He says, will they sacrifice? Take that to mean, do you think your God's going to help? Do you think all those sacrifices and prayers are going to help you build a wall? He says, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? In other words, you don't have the resources that you need. Then his sidekick, Tobiah, chimes in with a real zinger. He said, if a fox goes on it, he'll break down that stone wall. Burn. You know, I, I was joking with uh, Nathan Stevenson and Drake Durr when they were up here working last week as I'm prepping this sermon. I said, I'd like to write a devotional one day called The, the Burns of the Bible, uh, if you know what I mean by that. Now, this is one of them. I also like uh, in 2 Kings when Elisha, when they call him a bald head, and then the lion comes and mauls the kids. Uh, maybe we'll preach that one another day. Uh, but anyway, we see this kind of mocking that is intended to bully them and humiliate them and intimidate them into stopping the work. So how does Nehemiah respond? I want you to notice, first of all, he doesn't back down. He doesn't quit. He doesn't stop the work. But also, he doesn't try to get even. He doesn't try to get revenge. He doesn't fight fire with fire. He lives out Romans 12, 19, which says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Nehemiah entrusted justice into God's hands. He trusted God to handle it. That's what we see in this prayer. You might read this prayer and think, Oh, that's kind of harsh, Nehemiah. That's what he's, what he's praying. The intent of the prayer is to say, God, I'm leaving this in your hands. You will be the one to execute justice for those who are opposing your mission because this mission is yours. And as Christians, we should expect to be mocked. Now, that doesn't make it fun. doesn't make it enjoyable. I remember when I was in ninth grade at Gloucester High and I wore a Christian t-shirt to school and I got mocked relentlessly and I went home crying. Like, I remember those days. It's not fun. It's not easy. It's not enjoyable. But when that happens, as followers of Christ, we should know that we're in good company because Jesus Christ himself was mocked. When that happens, we shouldn't be bullied into being quiet. We shouldn't try to stoop to that level and get revenge. But instead, we leave justice in God's hands. We continue to love people because Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. And we should continue the mission that the Lord has given us. So we've seen opposition by mocking, but next we see opposition by plotting. By plotting. When the mocking didn't work, they ramp up the pressure. Verse 7. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Now, Nehemiah mentions four enemies here. It's not just Sanballat and Tobiah anymore. They've brought some friends. And here's what's significant about these enemies. If you were to look at this on a map of Jerusalem, these are the neighboring nations to Jerusalem to the north, the south, the east, and the west. So they are literally surrounded by people who are furious at them and do not want them to finish this wall. 
And mocking is now giving way to plotting. Now they are plotting together about how they can all come together and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion and chaos in it. As we see, and this is significant, the opposition is going to continue to get worse and worse until the mission is complete. And by the way, why was this opposition coming at all? This is significant. You need to know this. If they had never started building, they wouldn't care. The opposition is coming because they were successful. And I think often in our lives, when we are being opposed, we think, I must be doing something wrong. Or God, why is this happening? This is a sign that something's going wrong. I think it's just the opposite. I think that as followers of Christ, when we are facing opposition, it's a sign that the enemy sees us as worth opposing, sees us as a threat. And I would say the converse is also true. If your Christian life is smooth sailing, if it's always safe, soft, easy, and comfortable, perhaps you're not even on the enemy's radar. Perhaps he doesn't even view you as a threat. If that's the case, let me encourage you. Let's get to work so that you can be opposed a little more. So how did Nehemiah respond here? How does he respond here? I love verse 9. In fact, verse 9 could have been the whole sermon. You know, I want to focus on verse 9. It says, And we prayed to God and set a guard for protection. That's huge. I love this. I want you to see this. The most important word in that verse is the word and. The most important word is the word and. We prayed and we set a guard. It's not either we trust God and we pray or we act to protect ourselves. It's both. We're going to unpack that in more detail as we go. But there's one more form of opposition that we see in this text, and that's opposition by fear. Fear becomes the tactic. When plotting doesn't get it done and mocking doesn't get it done, they try to make them afraid. Verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes." Now there's fear coming at them from all sides, coming in waves. In verse 10, it comes from within the people themselves. They're discouraged. They're saying, how are we going to get this done? In verse 11, the enemy is now beginning to spread rumors of a surprise attack that is intended to make the people afraid and confused and intimidate them and to stop working. Verse 12, now it's their family. The relatives from other parts of Judah are now coming and saying, you must return to us. They came 10 times. So look at what Nehemiah is facing here. He is facing destroyed morale among the workers and potentially a mass desertion through fear, fear of a surprise attack. I hope you know that this is another very common tactic of the evil one. From the very beginning, I want you to notice something. 
all the way back, and when the Israelites are getting ready to enter the promised land, what was the reason why they couldn't enter into Canaan? Now, there's a lot of reasons, but at least one of them is fear. Because if you remember, when they're in the wilderness and they're waiting to go into the promised land, Moses sent 12 spies to go and scout out the, the land of Canaan, the promised land. Those 12 spies come back. You have two of them, Joshua and Caleb, who say, we got this. Let's go. God promised this land. Let's go do it. Then you got the other 10 who said this in Numbers 13, 31. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. Who do you think the Israelites listened to? The two or the 10? The 10. They wept. They complained. And get this. They said, we want to go back to Egypt. They were so afraid that they said, we would rather be in slavery in Egypt than trust God to keep his promises. And because of that, this people, this generation did not enter the promised land. Fear kept them from entering into the land of promise. And isn't this often true in our lives? How often has the enemy used fear to keep you from doing what God has called you to do? Whether it be fear of failure, what if I mess up? Whether it be fear of rejection, what will people think about me? Whether it be fear of suffering, what might happen if I do this? But listen to how Nehemiah responded. First of all, verse 13, he stationed guards. He went to the open spaces in the wall, the places that were vulnerable, and he put guards there in order to protect the people so that they could see that they had nothing to worry about. But then look at verse 14. He also preached to them. He gathers all the people, and he says, Do not be afraid of them. And he gives them two reasons why they should not be afraid. The first is, remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. I love that. I hope you know that that is the ultimate response to fear, remembering the Lord. We're afraid because we've forgotten who God is, and that he is with us, and that he is for us. Friends, we fear in our lives because we focus more on our problems than on our provider. We fear in our lives because we focus more on our situation than on our Savior. We become discouraged when, like Peter, we've stepped out on the boat and we're keeping our eyes on Jesus and we're following him, but instead of keeping our eyes on Jesus, we turn to check out the waves to make sure they're not getting too high. That's when we start to sink. Remember the Lord, that he is great and awesome, that he is with you, that he is for you. But then Nehemiah says, fight for your people. Fight for your wives, your brothers, your sons, your homes. He's saying this project is so much bigger than you that it impacts so much else. If we quit now, think about the consequences for those that you love. That's what he's saying. So we've seen these three forms of opposition, and now I want to show you the diligent response that they had to it. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan— again, he's giving God all the credit— we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. 
the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So this is their strategy. They're back to work. Well, some of them. Half of them are on work duty. Half of them are on guard duty with the leaders standing behind them to support them. And even the workers would work with one hand and they would keep a sword in the other hand. A lot of you guys hear me quote Charles Spurgeon all the time, a hero of mine, the Prince of Preachers, pastor in England in the, ni- in the, yeah, in the 19th century. He had a church magazine for his church and the name of the church magazine was The Sword and the Trowel named after this story in the Bible, the idea that as we are laboring for the kingdom of God, we have to have a sword in one hand to guard against the enemy and a trowel in the other hand to keep working. They even devised a warning system where they would say, if there's a breach in the wall and you guys are all spread out working, when we see the enemy coming, we'll sound the trumpet at the point where they're coming so we can all rally there. It was like an ancient version of ADT home security or ring or whatever so that they can be prepared to repel an attack. And even that, Nehemiah turns Jerusalem into a military base. They're now all staying the night in armor, sleeping with weapons in their hands, ready at any moment for an attack, completely prepared for the worst. And yet, notice what he says. After giving all of that, he says simply, our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. I want you to see both sides of that coin. It's not just we have this great strategy. It's our God will fight for us. I want you to see this. This teaches us today that our trusting God and our doing the best that we can are not at all inconsistent. We pray and we trust God for protection, but we also are diligent to plan and to do the right thing to protect ourselves and those we love. And you understand this intuitively, don't you? You pray that God would protect your family and your home, don't you? I hope so. Do you lock your doors at night? Probably, I hope so. I mean, I know it's Gloucester, but what about this one for our church? Do we pray for God's protection for our church regularly? Of course we do. Do we have a security team? Of course we do. Those two things are not at all inconsistent. We trust God, we pray, we say our God will fight for us, but we also work hard and work diligently to love and protect those within our care. This is yet one more example, and guys, this is on every page of the Bible once you start to look for it, where it is both true. There are these two parallel truths that God is totally in control, and we have to trust him. And yet we are totally responsible for our actions and that our choices that we make have an eternal consequence. Both are true. And a balanced Christian worldview only comes when we believe both. So we've walked through this story. We've walked through Nehemiah chapter 4. And I hope now to spend the rest of the sermon unpacking for you the opposition to our mission. How can we apply the principles that we've learned in this text to our mission as followers of Christ? 
Well, first of all, we need to understand who and what our opposition is. Because we have a different mission than Nehemiah had. His mission was to rebuild Jerusalem. Our mission is to partner with God in building his kingdom, to take the gospel to the nations, to make disciples, to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ that connect, grow, serve, and multiply. And likewise, just as our mission is different, our opposition is different. Nehemiah's opposition were the, the nations that are surrounding Jerusalem. Our opposition is what we're about to see. The New Testament gives us three enemies to our faith. The first is the world. The world. We talked about this in detail over the summer when we studied this text I'm about to read, so I'd encourage you to check this out online if you missed it. But 1 John chapter 2 spells out what we mean when we say the world. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what is the world in this text? I want to be clear. It's not the people in the world. We're called to love our neighbor. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, referring to the people in the world. When he says, do not love the world, he's referring to the system of this world to the system of unbelief that is opposed to God and his will. The sum total of lies that create a culture of rebellion against God. Kevin DeYoung put it this way, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. It is when you look around you and you see the, the teachings and the beliefs and the values and the desires that characterize the culture around us. Things that are characterized by the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, as John says. This is what he means by the world. But next, there's the flesh. The next enemy to our faith is the flesh. This is the enemy that is inside of us. This is our sin nature. Time for a quick 15-second theology lesson. Buckle up. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden— that sin did not just impact them alone, but Adam in the garden was acting as the representative for all of humanity. So when Adam sinned, we all, in a sense, sinned in Adam. So now, since that moment, every human being born into the world, except one, bet you can guess who that one was, is born into this world both guilty of that sin and now having a nature that is bent toward sin. It's the reason why we have this internal impulse inside of us that nobody had to teach us how to be selfish. You don't believe me? Our kids' ministry is looking for volunteers. <laughs> Our kids, we don't have to teach them how to be selfish, how to lie, how to do all these things. We are born into this world with this sinful bent, with this internal impulse to be selfish, to disobey God, to live for our glory instead of living for the glory of God. The word that we use for this in Scripture is the flesh. Romans chapter 7 describes the flesh. And even in this verse, Paul is talking about himself as a believer. Even as believers, we still wrestle with the flesh. This is what it says in Romans 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. This is the flesh, this internal impulse that we have to rebel against God. But there's one more enemy to our faith, and that's the devil. That's the devil. This is the personal enemy to our faith, the supernatural force of evil that opposes us as believers. This is what it says in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I like to think about it this way, if this is helpful. When you think about these three enemies, and by the way, they're in cahoots. They're all allies. Just like the nations were all working together against Nehemiah, the world, the flesh, and the devil all work together against us. Think about it this way. The world is the temptation outside of you. It's the external source of temptation. The flesh is the internal source of temptation. Our sin nature, our bent towards sin. And the devil is the one who is pushing the buttons on both the world and the flesh. The one who is actively working to tempt and to accuse. These are the enemies to our faith, working to oppose what God would have us do for his glory and for his kingdom. And in light of all of this, how should we respond? We've seen how Nehemiah responded to the enemies that were opposing him in his day. How can we apply those principles to how we respond when we are being opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil? Let me give you three things. Let me give you three things that I think we learned from Nehemiah chapter 4 on how to respond to opposition. The first is watchfulness. Watchfulness. Now, if you've been to We Are Coastal or you've been to Coastal for any length of time, you've heard that word. That's one of our core values here at Coastal Church is watchfulness. It means that we're keeping a close watch. We're keeping a close eye on our lives and on our doctrine so that we can be on guard against the schemes of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I mean, think about what Nehemiah did. He kept saying, we set a guard. We had half of the people on guard duty. We had the trumpet prepared to rally our people where the battle was going to take place. We were sleeping in our armor and with our sword in our hand. They were prepared. They were watchful. Likewise, as Christians, we are called to be watchful. For example, 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I'd like to apply this in a couple of different ways. First of all, let me encourage you on an individual level as a Christian— Keep a close watch on your heart and on your mind. Keep a close watch. Here's what I mean by that. Whether you realize it or not, you are being shaped by the things that you are allowing to influence you. You're being shaped by those things. I really hope you know that the, the entertainment that you consume, the news that you watch, the podcasts that you listen to, the books that you read, the social media accounts that you follow, so on and so forth. Those things are not value neutral. Those things can either be used for good to help you grow in your faith to come to know Christ, or they can be used by the evil one to draw your heart and mind away from God, to distract you and to distort your perspective. Keep a close watch on what you allow to influence you. Here's one I really want you to think about. Keep a close watch on your time with God. Keep a close watch on your time with God. Guard that time with all your heart to make sure you're spending time with God. 
Uh, this last week at our staff meeting, our, our, our staff here at Coastal Gloucester did a devotional where I sent the team an article a week ago and said, read this, let's discuss it. This article was all about how the evil one works to try to keep us from engaging with God, to try to keep us from spending time in the Word and in prayer. It's an article by David Mathis on DesiringGod.org. It was really excellent. I highly encourage it. But I want to read you this quote from the article that really ministered to me. The devil and his team know how powerful are the words of God and how vital they are for our life and health. They know the devastating power of ordinary Bible intake. They know the power of fire to warm coals and the power of God's word to feed saving faith and keep believing hearts soft. They know and tremble at the explosive, world-altering force of faithful Christians sitting down morning by morning without fireworks or theatrics or applause to the quiet glory of ordinary devotions. How many of us think about our Bible reading that way? That seriously? With terms like the quiet glory of ordinary devotions, the explosive, world-altering force of it. The evil one will do whatever he can to keep you from your Bible, to keep you from praying. Let me share something with you guys. There is no time of the day where I am more frequently tempted to worry or to be stressed than when I first wake up in the morning and I'm trying to pray and I'm trying to grab my Bible. That is not a coincidence because the evil one will do whatever he can to keep us from engaging with God because he knows how powerful it is. So keep a close watch on your time with God. Finally, families, keep a close watch on your family. I'm speaking in particular to parents here. Keep a close watch on your family. Everything that I said about influences earlier doubly applies here. Parents, what influences are you allowing to shape your children? the way that they think, the way that they feel. I really hope you know, I know I've said that phrase a lot, but I really hope you know that the world has a desire to shape the minds and the hearts of our children in a way that is opposed to Christ and his word. We are the ones who have to guard our children. We are the ones who have to set those boundaries on what we are allowing them to consume. The world will not set those boundaries for us. We are the ones who are responsible to guard what our children hear and see. So we have to be watchful. But next, we have to be prayerful. We have to pray. We don't only watch, we pray. Think about it. Nehemiah set guards. He equipped them. He turned Jerusalem into a military base. He did all of those things. But again and again, Nehemiah 4 talks about how he prays, how he tells them to remember the Lord, how he tells them that our God will fight for us. These two things go together for Nehemiah. We are watchful and we are prayerful. And by the way, they went together for Jesus as well. When Jesus is in the garden in Matthew 26, this is what he says to his disciples. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayer is one of the primary means that God gives us to resist temptation and to withstand opposition that comes our way. John Owen put it this way, if we do not abide in prayer, we will abide in temptation. So we have to pray. We have to pray and we have to trust God. But there's one more I want to show you, and that's action. Action. We watch 
and we pray so that like Nehemiah, the work won't stop. Why did they watch and pray? So that they could get back to work, so that they could accomplish the mission that God has given them. And likewise, church, we watch and we pray so that we can continue the work of the Great Commission. That is why the world, the flesh, and the devil oppose us as Christians. They know they can't take away our salvation. We're secure in God's hands if we are in Christ. What they try to do is render us weak and ineffective in God's service. It is to bully and intimidate us into being quiet, to mock and ridicule us so that we will stop preaching the gospel, that we will make our faith private. So what do we do? Like Nehemiah, we watch and we pray so that we can get back to work. Let me ask you this question. We love the armor of God passage in Ephesians 6, and rightly so. But why do we need the armor of God? So that we can get back to work. This is how the passage ends in Ephesians 6, 19. Paul says, Pray also for me that words may be given me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That's why we need the armor. So that we can boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this. If the world, the flesh, and the devil can get you to stop proclaiming the gospel, they've won. They've won. Even if they don't get you to renounce your faith, even if they don't get you to fall into some kind of scandalous sin, if they can get you to privatize your faith, they've won. Because that's our mission, is to proclaim the gospel. So what do we do, church? Let's be committed to not being bullied into silence, but being faithful to love people, to proclaim the gospel, and to go into all the world and make disciples, no matter the opposition. So at this point, I'd like to invite up the worship team. I'd like to invite up the prayer team. And I want to leave you with some encouragement, because here's the deal. Everything I've just said, I recognize how difficult that it is. Right? I recognize that this is not easy, that this is not fun. Nobody likes to be made fun of, right? No one likes to be the subject of some kind of plot or whatever else it might be. But I want to give you some encouragement for if you find yourself being opposed this morning. The first encouragement is this. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. That's what Nehemiah said to the people. Remember the Lord. Listen to this quote from Warren Wearsby. He said, opposition is not only an evidence that God is blessing, it is also an opportunity for us to grow. The difficulties that came to the work brought out the best in Nehemiah and his people. Satan wanted to use these problems as weapons to destroy the work, but God used them as tools to build his people. What was a sword in Satan's hand to destroy them was a tool in God's hand to build them up. As Joseph said in Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You know, commenting on that verse, John Calvin said that God takes what Satan intended for poison and he turns it into medicine for God's people. Do you realize that the Lord is great and awesome? That the Lord is sovereign over all things? That there's nothing outside of his sovereign will and control, even the schemes of the enemy? even the opposition that we face. Because of that, we can believe in the promise of Romans 8:28 that we sang this morning, that he works all things together for good. And how do you know? 
How do you know that God works all things together for good? Well, let me prove it to you. Because God took the ultimate evil in history and turned it into the ultimate good in history, the cross. What appeared to be the ultimate victory for the kingdom of darkness was the inauguration of the kingdom of God when they crucified the Lord of glory. But that death and resurrection is what makes salvation available for all of us today. God specializes in taking what was meant for evil and making it good. Therefore, in the face of the opposition that you are facing, remember the Lord. Remember that he is great and awesome. Remember that he works all things together for good. And lastly, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Keep your eyes on Jesus in the midst of the opposition that you face. I want you to know that when you are in a place of being opposed, you're fighting from the winning team, that Jesus has overcome the world. Listen to what he says in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He has overcome the world. I was on the phone with one of my mentors a couple of weeks ago, and he made a statement to me that I don't think I'll ever forget. He said, Nate, there is not one burden that God has called you to carry that he has not also called the Jesus inside of you to carry. That's true with the opposition that you face. There is not one thing that God calls you to carry that he's not carrying along with you. Therefore, therefore, keep your eyes on Jesus. He has overcome the world. You're fighting a battle that's already been won. So keep on trusting, keep on watching, keep on praying, and above all else, keep on working to build the kingdom through proclaiming the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's close with prayer. God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for the great things that you have done for us in Christ. We thank you, Father, that we are fighting a battle that's already been won. We thank you, Father, that you have overcome the world in Christ. And we thank you that you love us and that you invite us to trust you and follow you day by day. And Lord, I know there are people here today who are facing opposition. Maybe it comes from the world as they're being tempted to believe the lies that our culture promotes. Maybe it's opposition from their flesh as there's this temptation that they keep wrestling with. Maybe it's temptation from the evil one who knows exactly which buttons to press at what time to attempt and to accuse. Father, would you protect us? Would you guard us? Would you give us wisdom to be watchful? And would you give us the strength and the courage to continue the work that you've given us, not backing down? not being intimidated or bullied into silence, but following you and opening our mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Strengthen us, we pray. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.